Chapter Twelve of Bunker Bean by Harry Leon Wilson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. When Bean emerged from the office building that afternoon, he was closely scrutinized by an inconspicuous man who, just inside the door by the cigar stand, had been conversing with Tully. Bean saw Tully, but strode by that gentleman with head erect, chest expanded, and waist drawn in. Tully was cut, and Bean did not, of course, notice the inconspicuous man with whom Tully talked. This person, however, followed Bean to the street, where he seemed a little taken aback to observe the young man very authoritatively enter a large red touring car, and utter a command to its driver with an air of seasoned ownership. The red car moved slowly up Broadway. The inconspicuous man surveyed the passing vehicles and seemed relieved when he discovered an empty taxicab going north. He hailed it and entered, giving directions to its guide that entailed much pointing to the large red touring car, now a block distant. Thereafter, until late at night, the red car was trailed by the taxicab, at six o'clock the car stopped at a place of refreshment overlooking the river where the trailed youth consumed a modest dinner which he concluded with a radiant raspberry ice a little later he re-entered the red car and was driven aimlessly for a couple of hours through leafy byways the inconspicuous man became of the opinion that the occupant of the red car was cunningly endeavouring to conceal his true destination the car returned to the place of refreshment at 9.30, where the young man again ordered a raspberry ice, with which he trifled for the better part of an hour. He betrayed to the alert but inconspicuous person who sat near him, by his expectant manner of scanning newcomers' faces, that he had hoped to meet someone here. This expectation was disappointed. The watchful person suspected that the youth's confederates might have been warned. The quarry at length departed in obvious disappointment, and was driven to his abode in a decent neighborhood. The taxicab was near enough to the red car when this place was reached to enable its occupant to hear the young man request it for eight the following morning. The young man entered what a sign at the doorway declared to be choice steam-heated apartments, and the occupant of the taxicab was presently overheard by the janitor of the apartments expostulating with the vehicle's driver about the sum demanded for his evening's recreation. He was heard to denounce the fellow as a thief and a robber, and to make a vicious threat concerning his license. Bean was face to face with Ramta, demanding whatever strength might flow to him from that august personage. A crisis had come, Either he was a king, or he was not a king. If a king, he must do as kings do. If not a king, he would doubtless behave like a rabbit. But strength flowed to him, as always, from that calm, strong face. In Ramta's presence, he could believe no weakness of himself. Put him in jail, would they? A man who had not only ruled a mighty people in peace, but who had some hundreds of centuries later made Europe tremble under the tread of his victorious armies. Ramta had been no fighter, but Napoleon. He, Bunker Bean, was a wise king, yet a mighty warrior. Beat him down, would they, merely because he wanted to become a director in their company, 
Well, they would find out who they were trying to keep off that board. What if they did put him in jail? A good lawyer would get him out in a few minutes with a writ of something or other. A stay of proceedings, a demurrer, a legal technicality. He read the papers. Lawyers were always getting Wall Street speculators out of jail by some one of those devices, and if every other means failed, a legal technicality did the work. And the papers always called the release man a Napoleon of Finance. It wasn't going to be so bad. He hauled Ramta out of the closet and stood him at the foot of the bed for the night so that courage might come to him as he slept. The plan proved to be an excellent one after Knapp grew quiet. Knapp had always been excited in Ram Tah's immediate presence, and now he insisted upon sniffing about the royal cadaver in a manner atrociously suggestive. Being dissuaded from this and consenting to sleep, Bean sank into dreams of mastery beneath Ram Tah's lofty aspect. He awoke with a giant's strength. He arrayed himself in the newest check suit, and an especially beautiful shirt with a lavender stripe that bore his embroidered initials on one sleeve. He thought he would like to face them in his shirt sleeves and give Breed and the fussy old gentleman a good look at that lettered arm. He was also persuaded to don the entirely red cravat. Let the consequences be what they might. His refreshed spirit was equal to this audacity but the red car wearing a red cravat and a very red car was just a little too loud different enough to be sure but hardly <clears throat> dignified too advanced in short at eight o'clock he went out upon the world grasping his yellow stick and gloves most heroically would he enter the office with stick and gloves make bulger stare and if they put him in jail he must look right papers get his picture of course on the curb before the car that vibrated so excitingly he had a happy thought was he to go down there and wait pallid perhaps trembling until they came in and did things with him not he a certain corsican upstart would let them assemble first let them miss him wonder if he would come at all then he would saunter in superbly define the extreme limits of his imagination and coolly ask them what they were going to do about it this would irritate them it would irritate them all and especially the little oldest director he would swell up and grow purple perhaps he would have a stroke right there on the rug good work can't go to business this early he said genially to the ever respectful paul too fine a day and i got a deal on hand have to think it over go on out that way for a nice little spin paul directed the car out that way spinning it nicely it was a monstrous performance to spin at that hour in a direction quite away from the place where you are expected by all the laws of business and common decency this seemed to be the opinion of an inconspicuous man who followed discreetly in a taxicab but bean enjoyed it thinking that the night might find him in the narrow cell he looked with new interest on the street cars full of office-bound people they were meekly going to their tasks while he was affronting men with more millions than he had checks on the newest suit as they left the city and came to outlying villages he saw that he was going in the direction of breed's place he thought it would be a fine thing to get the flapper and go and be just perfectly married then he could send a telegram to the office telling them he could imagine nothing of less consequence and that they might all go to the devil it was easy to be snappy in a telegram 
but he remembered that the flapper just perfectly wished to manage it herself. Probably she wouldn't like his taking a hand in the game. Better not to be rough with the child at the start. They were miles away. The person in the taxicab might have been observed searching his pockets curiously and to be counting what money he found therein as he cast anxious glances toward the dial of the taximeter. Bean surveyed the landscape approvingly. Anyway, it was a fine enough performance to keep them waiting there. They would all be enraged. Perhaps the old one would have his stroke before the arrival of the spectator to whom it would give the most pleasure. They might be taking him out to the ambulance, and all the other directors would stand there and say, This is your work. Officer, do your duty. Well, it would be worth it. He'd tell them so, too. Looking ahead, he became aware that an electric car had suffered an accident. The passengers streamed out and gathered around the motorman who was peering under the car. As Paul slowed down and turned aside to pass, the motorman declared, "'She's burnt out. Have to wait for the next car to push us.' There were annoyed stirrings in the group. A few passengers started for a suburban railway station that could be seen a half-mile distant. Bean looked down upon these delayed people with amused sympathy. Then, astoundingly, his eye fell upon one of the passengers, a little aloof from the group about the motorman. He, too, after a last look at the car, seemed to be resolving on that long tramp to the station. He was a sightly young man, tall, heavily built, and dressed in garments that would on any human form have won Bean's instant respect. But on the form of the greatest picture the world has ever seen— his mind at once vacant of all the past, of all the future. There was no more breed, male or female, no more directors or shares or jails. There was only a big golden present, subduing, enthralling, limitless. Stop car, hissed Bean. The car halted three feet from the young man on foot. Jump in, gasped Bean. Thanks, said the young man. I'm going the other way. "'Me too! I was turning around just here!' The young man hesitated, surveying his interlocutor. "'Well,' he said, "'it won't be too much trouble.' "'Trouble!' The word was a caress as Bean uttered it. He pushed a door open clumsy with excitement, and the world's greatest pitcher stepped in to sit beside him. "'Grounds?' asked Bean. "'Yes,' said the pitcher, "'if it's convenient. "'Polo grounds!' called Bean to Paul. Hurry and turn around there some way. He was afraid his guest might reconsider. But the guest sat contentedly enough. The car was turned and presently was speeding back toward town. The person in a taxicab, which made the same turn a moment later, was heard to say, What the devil now? With no discernible relevance. Living out this way? asked Bean, when he was again certain of his voice control. No, only went out to stay overnight with some friends. Had to get back this morning. They told me to take car and change it. Ought to have one of these, said Bean. Then you know where you are. This runs well, said the pitcher affably. It's little old last year's car, said Bean with skilled ennui. He was trying to remember. Mustn't talk to a ball player about ball. They're sick of it. Got a busy day ahead of me in the street, he said brightly. I was only taking a little spin to get my head cleared out. Have to keep your head clear down there. Say, that's some suit you have on, said the pitcher with frank admiration. I like the check. Do you? 
asked Bean, trying not to choke. Then, where'd you get yours? I was noticing that suit the other night. Saw you up at Claremont. Couple of pals of mine when I'm in town. That white line against the blue comes out great in the daytime. Cut well, too. I see you got one of those patent neck capes that prevents wrinkling below the coat collar. And extension safety pockets, I suppose. Match pockets, change pockets, pencil pockets, fountain pen pockets, improved secret money pocket right here. See? The speaker indicated the last mentioned item. Flower holder up here under the lapel. He revealed it. I have em make a vestee, said Bean. Goes on with gold pins. Adds dressiness, the man says. The picture revealed a vestee adjusted with gold pins. The red car moved as smoothly as if nothing had happened. Next was made the momentous discovery that each wore a shirt with the identical lavender stripe. Initials, said Bean, pulling up the sleeve of his coat and rotating his forearm under the pitcher's approving glance. "'Got mine tattooed the same way,' said the pitcher, pulling up the sleeve of his coat in turn. They discussed shirts. "'Funny thing,' said Bean. "'Chap down in the office with me, worth a hundred million if he's worth a cent, wears separate cuffs, fastens them on with those nickel jiggers. "'Had a fellow on the team last year, did the same thing,' said the pitcher. "'He's back to the bush now, though.' The hick used to wear a made-up necktie, too, till the other lads kitted him out of it. "'You must get a lot of those Silas's one time and another,' said Bean sympathetically. He was wondering the fellow had referred at least indirectly to his calling. "'In the box today?' he asked, feeling brazen. The pitcher nodded. "'You certainly pitched some airtight ball last time I saw you. Say, I'll tell you something. If I ever have a kid, you know what's going to happen?' Nothing used but his left hand from the cradle up. And for toys, one league ball and a light bat, that's all. Right way, said the pitcher approvingly. I'm only afraid the managers will get wise to him and not let him finish out his college course, said Bean. I don't know, though. I'll be in the business myself by that time. May sign him on myself. Like it? asked the pitcher interestedly. Like it? Say, what else is there? Like it. I'm only keeping on down there in the street till I put a certain deal through. Then nothing but old base b-ball for mine. You'll see. I'll pick up one of the big clubs somewhere if money'll do it. Well, it's the one branch of the business where you don't have to treat your arm like a sick baby, said the pitcher. Say, you want to come inside a while? To Bean's amazement, the car had stopped before the player's entrance. He had supposed himself miles back in the country. Did he want to go inside for a while? He was out of the car as quickly as Nap could have achieved it. "'What did you say your name was?' asked the pitcher. He was in a long room lined with lockers. He recognized several players lounging there. A big man with a hard face, half in a uniform, was singing, "'The silver threads are among the gold.' I love you just the same. These men were requested to shake hands with the pitcher's friend, Mr. Bean. They were also told informally that his new check suit was some suit. I'll soon have one coming off the same piece, said the pitcher. They went through a little door and out upon the grounds. A few players were idling there, only two of the pitchers being in uniform. The vast empty stands and bleachers seemed to confer privacy upon an informal and friendly gathering. Several more players shook 
hands with the pitcher's friend, Mr. Bean, and the circumstance of his presence was explained. I found your twist paw out in the brush with nothing but a bum trolley car between him and a long walk, said Bean jauntily. He's got the prettiest red car that ever made you jump at a crossing, added the pitcher. They sat on the bench together. He winds up like old sycamore, said Bean expertly of a young pitcher who was working nearby. He does for a fact, testified one of the players. Did you know old sick? Chicago said bean down and out coming in from some tank team and having to wear his uniform for underclothes all winter they regarded him with respectful interest poor sick could never learn to take water in it said one he lived in a boarding-house two doors away from me said bean and when he'd taken about six or seven in at frank's place he'd start singing my darlin nelly gray only he'd have to cry at about the third verse. Then he'd lick some man that was laughing at him. That's old sick, all right. You got him, pal. The talk went to other stars of the past. Bean mostly listened, but when he spoke, they heard one who knew whereof he spoke. He was familiar with the public performance of every player of prominence for ten years. He was at home among equals and easy in his mind an inconspicuous man who had gained admittance to the grounds by alleging his need to inspect a sign that was to be done over above the fence beyond the outfield passed closely to bean and detected the true situation with one sweep of his eagle eyes fifteen minutes later this man was saying over a telephone to the largest director who sat in breed's office nothing doing last night but riding around in a big red car that was waiting for him down in front this morning at eight he starts north and picks up a man just this side fordham from a trolley car that breaks down they turn around and go to the baseball park he's settin there now gassin with a lot of the players tellin funny stories and the like he looks as if he didn't have a trouble on earth my taxicab bill is now for last night and today forty six eighty five shall i keep on him no shouted the largest director let him go let him alone and come in I forgot to say, added the inconspicuous man, that the party he picked up on the road and brought back here looks like he might be a ball player himself. Come in, repeated the largest director, on a streetcar. Looks to me, ventured the quiet director to the largest, as if you didn't bluff him quite to death last night. Automobile, said Breed. Knew he had someone bind him. Let's get to business. No good putting it off now said the quiet director seven hundred shares my god this is monstrous said the little eldest director who had been making noises like a heavy locomotive bean would have sat forever on that bench of the mighty world forgetting if not world forgot but the departure of several of the men drew his attention to the supreme obligation of a guest well he said rising look in on us again some day urged the pitcher cordially thanks i surely will said bean i like to forget business this way now and then good day they waved him friendly adieus and he was out where paul waited forget business he had indeed for two hours forgotten business and people not once had he thought of those waiting directors well they could do their worst now he was ripe to laugh at any fate what was prison the prisoner he seemed to read b 
betrayed no consciousness of the enormity of his crime and had indeed spent the morning at the polo grounds chatting with various members of the giants with which team he is a great favorite let them bring their gyves let the bar door clang shut office he said to paul there was no doubt in paul's mind as to the quality of his patron he had at once recognized the greatest pitcher he ceased to speculate as to whether this assured young man owned the high office building that was now of minor consequence on the way downtown he tried to remember what day it was he thought it was friday but again it seemed to be monday he stopped the car and bought an afternoon paper to find out at the entrance to the big office building he debated a moment wait he directed paul he was uncertain how long he might be permitted to remain in that building if he must go to jail he would ride he wondered if paul knew the address of the best jail he could have things sent in to him magazines and fruit inside the entrance he paused before the cigar stand he must think carefully what he would say to those men of round millions he must keep up his front his glance roamed to the beautifully illustrated boxes of cigars a good idea gimme one those he said to the clerk indicating a box that flaunted the polychrome portrait of a distinguished-looking spaniard he was surprised at the price but he bit the tip off violently and began to mouth it i'm no penny-pincher he muttered thinking of the cigar's cost he tilted the cigar to a fearless angle and slanted his hat over his left eye he lolled against the cigar case gathering resolution for the ordeal the door of an elevator down the corridor shot open, and there emerged in a single file a procession headed by the little oldest director who had allowed him to go free overnight. They marched toward the door, looking straight ahead. They must pass in front of him. He felt a sudden great relief. Something in their bearing told him they were powerless to restrict his liberty. The oldest director deigned him no glance but snorted accurately in his direction, nevertheless the quiet one grinned faintly at him but the two neutral directors passed him loftily as if they were virtue scorning vice in a morality play the largest director frowned at the stripling who was savagely chewing a fifty-cent cigar at the procession the moment was incontestably the stripling's he was cool and meant to take the fullest advantage of it he meant to say contemptuously i can imagine nothing of less consequence but the officious cigar clerk held a lighted match to the choice cigar and the magnificent defiance was smothered by a cough he was obliged to content himself with glaring at the expansive and well-rounded back of the biggest director he was alone on the field pretending enjoyment of a cigar which was now lighted and loathsome bulger entered from the street and viewed him with friendly alarm say where you been demanded bulger old pussyfoot's got a sore thumb right now from pounding that buzzer of yours all morning he's hot at everyone i heard him call tully a slinking something or other couldn't get the word but tully got it say you better get busy regular old george w busy if you want to hold that job job laughed bean bitterly and waved the expensive and lighted cigar in bulger's face job well i may get busy and then again i may not all depends gee said bulger profoundly moved by this admirable spirit of insubordination well i got to get back i'm five minutes late myself bean waited until he had gone 
Then he strolled out to the street and furtively dropped an excellent but slightly burned cigar into the gutter. He wished those fellows at cigar stands would do only what they were put there for, taking liberties with people. He decided to go back as if nothing had happened. Let Breed do the talking, and if he talked rough, then tell him very simply that nothing of less consequence could be imagined. Continue to play the waiting game. That was it. He entered the office humming lightly. He seemed to be annoyed by the people he found there. He glared at Bulger, at old Metziger, at the other clerks, and especially at Tully. Tully looked uncomfortable. He wasn't a gazelle, after all. He was a startled fawn. Telephone for began the office boy, humorist, but Bean was out of hearing in the direction of the telephone booth before the latest mot could be delivered. "'Been trying to get you all morning,' began the flapper in eager tones. "'I should think you would stay there when I may have to call you any minute. That grocer gave me the nicest little book. Why did your husband fail in business, with a picture of the poor man that failed on the cover? It's because he didn't get enough phosphorus to make him 100% efficient, and if he'd eaten brain more mush for breakfast, nothing would have happened. We'll try it anyway, and there's a triple-plate spoon in every package, so if I order a dozen... And, oh yes, what was I going to say? Why, I'm perfectly going to pull off the funniest stunt this afternoon. You'd just deliciously die laughing if I told you, but it will be still funnier if you don't know... Are you paying attention? It's because I'd already spent my allowance for three years and seven months ahead. I figured it all out like a statement, and I've perfectly just got to have some money of my real own. I've enough to worry about without bringing money into it. With proper food for you and those patent laundry tubs I told you about, and the man says he wouldn't think of letting it go for less than two seventy-five, but that's five dollars saved. Well, good-bye. I'll manage everything, and Granny says always to conceal little household worries from him, and just perfectly keep the future looking bright and interesting. She says that's the secret. Good-bye. What am I? Startled fawn, said Bean. Well, don't forget. I won't. I'll attend to my part, all right. He heard the fateful buzzing even before he opened the door of the telephone booth. Breed was at it again. He walked coolly to his desk for a notebook. Everyone else in the office was showing nervousness. He was the only man who could still the troubled waters. He would play the waiting game, keep the future looking bright and interesting. Breed could do the rest. Buzz! 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 It sounded pretty vicious. He entered Breed's room with his accustomed air of quiet service. Breed did not glance at him. He began, as usual, to dictate before Bean was seated. Letter T.J. Williams, Assistant, Superintendent, M.P.N.C., Department C. and L.M. Railway, Chicago. Dear sir, please note, close, social, car, parent, make two copies, send one, don't take that, and let me have it, your earliest convenience. Apparently nothing at all had happened. He was at his old post, and Breed did nothing but explode fragments of words as ever. No talk of jail or betrayal of trust, or of his morning's flagrant absence. One might have thought that Breed himself played the waiting game. Or perhaps Breed only toyed with him. He fastened his gaze on the criminal cuffs. They were his rock of refuge in any cataclysm that might impend. If only he could keep those cuffs within his range of vision, he would fear nothing. Patent laundry tubs, five dollars saved, while your husband failed in business, bright and interesting future. Lo, lo! 
Reed was detonating into the desk telephone which had sounded at his elbow. Lo, well, what? Run off. Stop nonsense. Busy. He hung up the receiver. Also must be stipulated that case of dividend being passed. The desk telephone rang again, this time more emphatically. Bean was chilled by a premonition that the flapper meant to pull off that funny stunt which was to cause him quite deliciously to die laughing. Breed grasped the receiver again impatiently. Busy, tell you. No time nonsense. What? 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 He listened another moment, then lessened his tone production, but losing nothing of intensity, he ripped out, Great Godfrey! His eyes narrowed as he listened, now widened upon Bean, who stared determinedly at the cuffs. You know what she says? Yes, said Bean doggedly. Then his eyes met Breed's and gave them blaze for blaze. The great reorganizer knew it not, but he no longer looked at Bunker Bean. Instead, he was trying to shrivel with his glare a veritable king of old Egypt, who had enjoyed the power of life and death over his remotest subject. Bean did not shrivel. Breed glared at his deadliest only a moment. He felt the sway of the great Ramta without identifying it. He divined that mere glaring would not shrivel this presumptuous atom. In truth, Bean outglared him. Breed leaned again to the telephone, listening. Bean lowered his eyes to the cuffs. He sneered at them now. The intention of the lifted upper lip was too palpable. "'Great stars above!' murmured Breed. "'She says she's got it all reasoned out.' There was something almost plaintive in his tones. He shuddered. Then he rallied bravely once more. "'Tell you no time nonsense. Busy!' But he seemed to know he was beaten. He listened again, then wilted. "'What next?' he demanded of Bean. "'Ask her. Nice mess you got me into.' Bean sneered resolutely at the cuffs. Again the telephone tinkled. Breed listened, and horror grew on his face. "'Now she's told her mother,' he muttered. "'My God!' The transmitter was an excellent one, and Bean caught the notes of hysteria. Julia was fussing back there. "'Now, now,' urged Breed. "'No good. Better lie down. She says she's got it all reasoned out. Don't I tell you?' He put a throttling hand over the anguished voice and looked dumbly at Bean. He noted the evil sneer and traced it to the cuffs. Slowly he hung up the receiver and took one of the cuffs in his hands. "'What's matter with these cuffs?' he demanded with a show of his true spirit. "'Right enough. Cuffs all right, if you like that kind. But why don't you wear em on, like this?' He luminously exposed his left forearm. It was by intention the one that carried the purple monogram. "'Sewed on, like that,' he added almost sharply. Breed seemed to be impressed by the exhibit. "'Well,' he began awkwardly, as a man knowing himself in the wrong, but still defiant, "'I won't do it, that's all. Not for anybody.' Still he seemed to consider that something more than mere apparent perverseness would become him. "'They get down round my hands all the time. Can't think when they get down that way. Bother me. Take my mind off. I won't do it, that's all.' I don't care. Not for anybody tall. He replaced the cuff beside its mate. He seemed to be saying that he had settled the matter, and no good talking any more about it. Bean was silent and dignified. His own air seemed to disclose that when once you warn people in plain words, 
you could no longer be held responsible. For a moment they made a point of ignoring the larger matter. Say, Breed suddenly exploded, I wish you'd tell me just how many kinds of a... No matter. Where was I? This reserve fund may be subject to draft for repairs and betterment during soon quarter or until such time as... The telephone again rang its alarm. Breed took the receiver and allowed dismay to be read on his face as he listened. Well, 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 he at length began soothingly. Go lie down. Take something. Take something. Well, send over to White Plains for some more. Push asleep. What can I do? Again the throttling hand. He ruefully surveyed his littered desk, then drew the long sigh of the baffled. Take telegram my wife. Sorry, can't be home. Late. Portin' board meeting. Maybe called out of town. The telephone rang, but was ignored. Send it off, he directed Bean, above the bell's clear call. And come on, go ball game. Go up in subway. Got car downstairs, suggested Bean. You got your work cut out for you. That's all I gotta say, growled Bean. It's little old last year's car, said Bean modestly. End of chapter 12